0: Hey super friends, my name is Neil and welcome to this episode 81 of the Get Your Comic-Con podcast. We're here fortnightly-ish to bring you a slice of film, TV and pop culture goodness from our studio directly to your speakers. I am not joined by my usual boy wonder Martin this week as he is off in PhD land, but I am joined by my tiny uh, boy wonder Oliver who is currently lying in my lap. So if you can hear purring, it's just the cat, it's not me. I have a bunch of news to catch you up on this episode and then I've got a couple of films that I want to talk about, that, one of which is in cinemas now and another which is releasing a little later this week which I think is going to cause some real interesting discussions on social media and I also have a couple of recommendations for you for books and TV which is coming up this week actually in terms of release. So I think without further ado, why don't we roll that news theme and start talking about this week's headlines. We have a very trailer-themed news bulletin for this week's episode. In the last few days, we've had new trailers for Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, which releases just next month. We also had a new trailer for The Mandalorian Season 3, which debuts on March 1st, plus new trailers for both Superman and Lois Season 3 and the debut season of Gotham Knights from The CW. Let's start with Ant-Man and the Wasp. This one is releasing in cinemas on February the 17th, 2023. It's once again directed by Peyton Reed and stars the returning Paul Rudd and Evangeline Lilly as Ant-Man and the Wasp, respectively. It uh, it has Catherine Newton, who's taking over as Cassie Lang in this film. Returning are, of course, Michelle Pfeiffer and Michael Douglas as Janet Van Dyn and Hank Pym. And this time around, they will be going up against Jonathan Major's Kang the Conqueror, who debuted in uh, the first season of Loki on Disney+. Plus. I'm sure you have seen this trailer by now. It's also worth noting that tickets are available as of this week in the UK, so you can go and book your tickets to see this one now. I believe you can also book in the US. This trailer is huge. We've known for a while that Quantumania was obviously gonna dive into the quantum realm. The title gives that away. (laughs) It's not really hard to imagine, is it? But when you think about Ant-Man one and two, they were both palate cleansing films. They came at the end of their respective phases. And they were—I don't want to call them outright comedies because the MCU does always have that underpinning sense of comedy. But they were—they were light relief following some really major films. So, for instance, if you look at uh, the the second film, *Ant-Man and the Wasp*, that was obviously released after *Infinity War*, and it was only in the stinger in the end credits that we saw um, everyone kind of turning to dust and that that was then what happened you know we went into the gap while we waited for endgame and this time around uh, quantumania was actually the first film of phase five and that as kevin feige has said is all about the importance that they're putting on the character and the fact that he has earned his place not just as the palate cleanser but as a major avenging hero you know he is an avenger he is going to be leading the charge against kang in this film and rightly so, this trailer is huge. It spends most of its time in the quantum realm. You know, we get the understanding and the context that uh, they're doing some experiments in the, in our earth and that they are sucked into the quantum realm and that we're gonna learn that Janet Van Dyne had this whole life down there. And she probably has connections to Kang and other characters who are in the quantum realm. And so it looks like an absolute blockbuster. It looks very serious. There are variants, which is what we're coming to understand from this multiverse theory that's currently in play in the MCU. There are some real stakes, and also the MCU debut of MODOK, who may or may not be Jacket from the first film, um, and maybe some slightly questionable CGI from when he's not wearing a mask. Uh, but overall, this trailer is absolutely spectacular. It Looks like an Avengers level movie. The VFX look amazing, which is something that people have been questioning in some of the more recent Marvel releases, maybe more so on Disney Plus, but certainly visual effects and Marvel are a big hot topic within the media at the moment, and yet this film does look spectacular. There are hints at Quantum Realm technology, which might connect to Shang-Chi and to Miss Marvel. This Looks like it could be the film that starts to turn around opinions that the last couple of phases of the MCU, kind of the post-endgame era of the MCU, has been more disjointed. Perhaps after all this time, we are finally starting to see that there are a lot of threads that run through Phase 4 and into this now Phase 5, which are going to push us in the direction of what's coming next. So I don't want to say any more because I don't want to get into spoiler territory about things that I might have read that aren't publicly known but this certainly seems like it's going to be a very very exciting film so i can't wait to see it uh, i don't know when i'm seeing it yet but all being well we will be bringing you a review ready in time for february the 17th 2023 when ant-man and the wasp quantumania hit cinemas so a show that i am very very excited for to return and returns should i say on march the 14th in the us is superman and lois This is going to be the third season of Superman and Lois. Hopefully it will come to the BBC here in the UK pretty soon as well. Uh, Season two came to iPlayer and to to BBC pretty quickly after season one. And we have seen a couple of stills from early episodes in the season. Um, There has been a little bit of set photography, but not a huge amount. The biggest thing that we know so far about this season is that obviously Jordan Elsass has exited as Jonathan Kent. And he is being replaced by Michael Bishop, who will take over in the role. His debut will come in that first episode. Uh, for those who aren't aware of him, he uh, played the role of Max in Spin. He was also uh, a character called Jerry in a film called Shelter. He is He's a relative newcomer, but he appears from this trailer to have slotted into the cast well. Obviously, we have Tyler Hecklin and uh, Elizabeth Tullock, uh, Bitsy Tulloch, who return as... Um, Why am I questioning who they are? Uh, The (laughs) titular Superman and Lois. Uh, This trailer is surprisingly huge. So, like I said, we don't know very much about season three at this point. We don't have a synopsis. We don't know what they're up to. We do know from the end of the previous season that this isn't the same Earth as The Flash and the other CW shows. So, this is very much now existing in its own space. And we appear to be telling quite a big story that will involve not just uh, Metropolis and the Daily Planet, but also Lois. Some of the dialogue that's given away in this trailer is something in regards to Lois being missing, and we do get a shot of the very, very famous globe from the top of the Daily Planet building, collapsing and, and looking like it is probably going to crush her. Now, I highly doubt that they're going to kill Lois off, or maybe we're seeing a glimpse of something from another universe, and she will be killed off in this particular um this universe or whatever it is that we're seeing maybe it's a premonition who knows at this point we have very little context other than what's in the trailer but it certainly looks like one of the biggest things that this show has done so far which is very very exciting and it certainly looks like the super fam are going to be all very heavily involved in the storyline so you know we get to see uh jordan using his powers we get to see Jonathan kind of encouraging Jordan in what he's doing. Uh Jordan trying to live up to his father's I don't want to say mantle because he's not trying to be Superman, but, you know, living up to the reputation that his dad has. It certainly looks like this is going to be a very emotional and very high stakes, large scale season, which is very, very exciting. It's only I think it's a minute it might even be 30 seconds uh, it's only a short promo but it's certainly very exciting in terms of setting the scene for what they're going to be doing this season um, if you haven't seen it you can check it out over on our website along with the Ant-Man trailer that I just talked about and the other two trailers which we're going to talk about in a second if you aren't already aware uh, that is www.getyourcomiccon.co.uk Now also premiering on March the 14th in the US on the CW is a slightly more let's say controversial series Gotham Knights. Now this one is not related to the computer game of the same name they are they are literally just using the name. It doesn't relate to anything that might have been called Gotham Knights in the past. It is entirely its own entity, which comes from Natalie Abrams, uh, who is obviously, to those of you who kind of pay attention to credits, is one of the writers from Batwoman. If IMDB is to be believed, Caroline Dries, who was the showrunner on Batwoman, has also written an episode. I don't know how true that is. That's the first time I've seen those those two names, Gotham Knights and Natalie Drys, uh, put together, but that's what IMDB is telling me. And this show um, for those who are not in the know is another uh, Batman adjacent show so a kind of synopsis is Bruce Wayne is murdered and his adopted son forges an alliance with the children of Batman's enemies as the city becomes more dangerous these mismatched fugitives will become its next generation of saviors known as the Gotham Knights now IMDB doesn't quite have the cast in ...the right kind of order. So I'm just going to try and pick these through. So you have Oscar Morgan, who is playing Turner Hayes. Now, Turner Hayes... ...we wondered whether that was a made-up name... Uh, ...something to throw us off the scent to begin with... ...but that doesn't seem to be. He is a character who has been invented for this show... ...as it as it were, who is the adopted son of Bruce Wayne... ...and who is left orphaned when when Bruce is killed... ...in presumably the pilot episode of the show probably off screen or although there is a body that is seen in this new trailer uh, but don't expect Bruce to be a huge part of of this show so it's not explicitly stated that Turner is based on any of the Robins or any character that we've already seen he is going to quickly find himself uh, locked up for the murder of his adoptive father for some reason we don't know why that may be part of the mystery of the season And from there, he will meet a bunch of other characters, which is how this mismatched group of Gotham Knights will come together. So also in the show, we have Navia Azarali-Robinson, who is playing Carrie Kelly. Now, obviously, that name will ring a bell. She was a female Robin in uh, the Dark Knight Returns comic book and has been adapted in some of the other versions of Batman across all media. Carrie, we believe, is a Robin who is seen in the trailer. Doesn't have a very Robin-like outfit, but does call themselves Robin. We've got Olivia Rose Keegan, who is playing Dweller Dent. Now, you will know that name from the uh, the comics as uh, the daughter of the Joker. She does appear to be the daughter of the Joker in this as well, but how literal that representation will be remains to be seen. There is a shot in the trailer where uh, a Joker card is, is placed in front of her and she is asked if she is the, the daughter of the Joker and she, she does laugh. And there is also a shot in the trailer which emulates uh, the Dark Knight, where we see her hanging out the window of a police car as it is careening down the streets of Gotham. You also have Anna Law, who is playing Stephanie Brown. So we would know her as Spoiler or currently one of the Batgirls. And then Fallon Smythe is playing Harper Rowe, uh, known in the comics as Bluebird, introduced in one of the uh, Batman uh, Immortal, it is Immortal, isn't it, series, one of the one of the weekly ones that was it uh, run a few years ago. And we will also have Harper's brother, In the show, uh, Cullen, played by uh, Tyler DiChara. I probably pronounced that surname wrong, so I apologize. Then, in terms of other notable characters who are appearing in this show, Misha Collins from uh, Supernatural, who played Castiel, is appearing as Harvey Dent. We do see Harvey in this trailer, and he is not Two Face, which would suggest that on this version of Earth, whatever it is going to be, although Bruce has been Batman and Bruce is now supposedly dead, uh, he has never clearly gone up against Two Face because Harvey. is is not Two-Face at the beginning. Now Misha has teased on social media uh, some makeup tests which do seem to suggest that he will at some point transform into Two-Face. They could surprise us and it could be that he begins the series as a reformed Harvey who's had plastic surgery and then uh, is still not quite right and goes to to mess up his face again and become Two-Face or it might just be that on this version of Earth Two-Face has not existed yet. Deja D is in this series as Commissioner Soto I'm going through this on IMDB, so I might shout out some randoms, um, but the, the, the mutant gang looks like they're going to appear, there's someone called Christina R. Gregg who is credited as being mutant gang member, so that would again tie back to the Dark Knight Returns, Lovell Gates is playing a reporter, there are more mutant gang members, there's also an owl gang member uh, played by Art Newkirk, so that could suggest the Court of Owls are involved. But there are no uh, yet Court of Owls member Derek M. Puma. So that would suggest the Owls are involved. Reporters from GNN News. There are no other major names in terms of what's being reported on IMDb uh, for cast members as yet. Just some confirmation that the courts seem to be in there. We know very little else about this show. There does seem to be some quite big scale action in the trailer. We do get a shot of the Batcave which looks quite cavernous and huge which is probably going to be part VFX and there do seem to be some slightly wonky VFX in the trailer there is a cityscape shot that looks like something out of 2002's Birds of Prey but it might just be that it's not finished yet given we're two months away from it premiering we really don't know very much and it's hard to get excited about a show which seems to be another bat adjacent kind of Probably dealing with licensing issues that mean that certain characters can't appear, type show, almost like Batwoman was in its first season, or even again, like I just said, Birds of Prey back in the 2000s, where they were only allowed to make up characters related to characters that we knew. This seems like the kind of show that's just trying to capitalize on the Bat name to do something else. So I'm very skeptical of it, but I will tune in on the 14th of March and see what happens. Maybe we will be surprised. Have you watched this trailer? What do you think of it? Are you excited for Gotham Knights? What are your feelings on it? Get in touch with me and let me know. You can find me on social media at Neil Vag, which is at obviously uh, N-E-I-L-V-A-G-G. I'm on Instagram and uh, Twitter, and you can always find us on all major platforms at Get Your Comic Con. Lastly, just as I am recording this, Disney is launching a brand new trailer for the return of The Mandalorian. The series comes back to Disney Plus on March the first for its third season. And, well, this is quite an action-packed trailer. Now, I am not the world's foremost authority on Star Wars, but it uh, certainly has all of the action that we've come to expect in the previous seasons and plenty of Baby Yoda, a.k.a. Grogu. The series, once again, stars Pedro Pascal, Katie Sakoff, Carl Weathers, Amy Sedaris, Emily Swallow and Giancarlo Esposito. This time around, the Mandalorian and Grogu are going to be heading to Mandalore. He is definitely searching for that missing piece of the puzzle as to what is going on and why he has ended up uh, on the path that he is on this season. It certainly looks like they are upping the action. It's going to be an eight episode season and directors have been confirmed as uh, Rick Famuyiwa, Rachel Morrison, Lee Isaac Chung, Carl Weathers... Peter Ramsey, and of course, because you can't have a season of The Mandalorian without her, Bryce Dallas Howard. I'm sure I saw a sneaky shot of Boba Fett in there, and I have from social media reactions spotted that there is a story connection. Obviously, The Mandalorian turned up in an episode of Boba Fett, and likewise, the second season of Mandalorian had a Boba Fett episode, so there is definitely some throughput there in terms of the narrative between the two series, and... Absolutely, from the space battle that we get to see and the, let's say, lightsabers, I'm going to say no more than that, there are some bigger connections to the wider Star Wars universe out there. So it seems like season three maybe won't quite be as isolated as previous seasons have been, uh, which is very, very exciting. This is obviously a absolutely critically acclaimed and groundbreaking show for the franchise because it's really outstripped the success of some of the recent movies even and has now birthed this this world where we have multiple star wars shows so it is very exciting to see that the mandalorian is returning very soon as i said it's back on screens globally on disney plus from march the 1st that is it for the news this week if you have your an opinion which i'm sure you do on any of the stories that i have just discussed then yeah please do get in touch at get your comic on on all social media platforms and i look forward to bringing you some exciting interviews uh, hopefully in our next episode but we shall wait and see to be confirmed for sure now let's dive in on some reviews I have two films that I want to talk to you about in this episode, one of which is available in cinemas now globally, and another which has already been released in the US and comes to UK cinemas at the end of this week. One of them stars Margot Robbie, the other stars a homicidal robot. (laughs) So I'm going to kick off with Megan, which is in UK cinemas now uh, from Universal Pictures. This one uh, is based on an idea from James Wan, the the man behind plenty of horror films like The Conjuring and also the original Saw film. And many of us from listening to this podcast will know him as the mastermind director behind the first Aquaman film and soon to be second Aquaman and The Lost Kingdom which comes out at the end of this year. The film was masterminded alongside Jason Blum from Blumhouse and directed by Gerard Johnston. Akilah Cooper wrote the screenplay based on James Wan's story. The cast for this film, Alison Williams stars as Gemma, Violet McGraw stars as Katie, you've got Ronnie Cheng as David, then Megan is played by a mix of Amy Donald and Jenna Davis. Also starring, you have Brian Jordan Alvarez as Cole and Jen Van Epps as Tess and Stefan... I've just managed to favorite him on IMDb rather than get his full name. Uh, Stefan ghanu Mountain is playing uh, the role of Kurt, who could potentially be quite pivotal to any potential sequel. So Megan is... Actually, to be fair, you all know what Megan is. She is a uh, viral TikTok dance sensation, apparently, with probably... I mean, the last time I read it was something like 1.5 billion hits. It's probably now like 2 billion at the very least. Uh, She is probably going to be classed as the latest horror icon. Uh, The film is somewhat of a comedy, more than a straight-up horror. It's clear that probably the basic premise and idea behind the film was very much rooted in the kind of horror that James Wan has produced over the years, that kind of conjuring type of a film, but that quickly it was realised that this character has a much, much broader appeal, uh, an appeal that would reach to a younger audience, which is why the film is a PG-13 in the US. It is a 15 here in the UK, but it's... I mean, it's probably you would classify it as tame by 15 standards. It would only be the fact that there is blood in there and I think some language that would kind of give it away that it is uh, there is a harsher, more gory film lying underneath. But... It is uh, a huge crowd pleaser, a huge crowd pleaser. I went to a press screening of this and normally press screenings aren't like when you would go to the cinema to a public screening. Everyone is a little bit more serious. People are taking notes. Obviously, you know, we've been asked to put our phones away, turn them off, seal them away in bags so that we don't take any spoilers and and reveal them to the world. Um, so, But it's not like we were all sitting there with our phones out, but certainly it was a hugely vocal crowd laughing cheering in some cases singing along and really just getting into what is this huge crowd pleasing film this is once it hits home video this is the kind of film that you are going to want to grab a bunch of friends you know order a pizza open a couple of beers and sit back and just enjoy it's a it's a like um, how do I want to describe it? I don't want to call it like a party movie because it's not like it's sort of uplifting and like has some kind of pulse pounding soundtrack. It's just a great group watch to get into and just have a laugh and enjoy. Megan is a is a brilliant invention as a character. He really looks like all of the Olsen sisters put together, like the twins and Elizabeth. Uh, she's very Olsen like, but more than that, the character is just. Perfectly crafted, she is every bit the kind of best friend that you can. I mean, it, it, it's it's incredibly plausible. Aside from the fact that as a toy, she would cost ten thousand dollars to buy, which is an in-world thing. That's not like a, a factual thing. Um, she is there. It's, it's undeniable just how much of a uh hit it would be if it was a real affordable toy she is every girl's best friend it is interesting that the there are no kind of gender politics in in the film in terms of discussing whether this is a toy that boys would want or having a male version of the toy it is it's very much just the perspective of this is the doll that all girls are going to want because it's going to be their best friend and interestingly there is some diversity in there in terms of skin tones and hair colors and stuff but they try not to make too much of the aesthetic of the doll it is more just you know, she is the best friend and the capabilities that this AI has are uh, what you would want in a best friend. And it is, it's funny because the film signposts a lot of what is to come. So obviously anyone going into it has probably seen the trailer and understands, even from a poster, that this doll is going to go homicidal. And quickly you're introduced to a noisy neighbor who has a very rowdy dog. You're also um, introduced to a kind of predecessor robot called Bruce that lives in the garage of the house that comes back into play later there is an Alexa type device called an Elsie that um, is prominent throughout the film and they're all tiny little signposts to things that will come later what is more interesting to me in fact is that there are a couple of well actually Elsie is is one of them at the end of the film but there are a couple of potential plot ideas for what a sequel film could do one of which I think is more plausible than the other I don't want to get into spoilers as to how the film ends, but um, one of the characters that works at the, the the company who is developing the toy is potentially leaking schematics and secrets to, to a rival firm, which could lead to like a, a Megan versus Megan sequel in which um, an evil Megan goes up against a whole army of Megans from another rival firm that are trying to get control over the technology the the plausibilities the possibilities are endless for what could come next i'm getting ahead of myself thinking about sequels let's get back to this film uh so it starts out with uh katie who is the young character played by uh violet mcgraw she is unfortunately caught up in a car accident which uh, in which her parents are killed and goes to live with her aunt Gemma, played by Allison Will- Williams, who is kind of our de facto sort of adult lead and is the inventor of uh, the AI system which is built into Megan. So Gemma is not really prepared to be a parent. She is, although she, you know, she loves her niece and she had agreed with her sister that if anything were to happen, she would she would take her in and become her legal guardian. She struggles with parenting, and there is a kind of a psychologist character who is keeping an eye on them, uh, who is very blunt about the fact that things need to change in order to make it a happy home for Katie to try and get over her grief and to grow up in. And at the same time, in her professional career, Gemma is struggling because her company is trying to force her to create sillier and sillier cheaper toys, when all she wants to do is tweak this AI system that she's been building that will eventually become Megan. So uh, naturally, two and two together, she thinks that she can help Katie to get over her um, her grief by giving her Megan, pairing the two together and seeing what happens. It's a mutually beneficial relationship. It helps the, the young girl to try and get over the loss of her parents and at the same time tests this technology. Now, that's not a great motivation. Gemma is not a great person to kind of go, uh, hang on a minute, here's an easy way out. But how atypical is that of society these days? Let's take the easy way out and use the technology. The subtext in terms of reliance on technology and uh, how lazy we are as a culture is absolutely brilliant throughout the film. It is a, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a cutting subtext of humanity throughout the film, which I found really funny. It's one of the funniest things about it. And so the two kind of bumble along with Megan helping out, teaching Katie to do things like, remember, to flush the toilet, to put her glass on a coaster. It's all just really simple stuff. But over time, slowly, Megan builds up this relationship with Katie that becomes symbiotic in a way. And the psychologist is able to witness it. She is worried that what Gemma has done is rather than giving Katie a parental figure in herself to focus on she's given her a robot that now has become the only person with whom she can form an emotional attachment but for Gemma there's almost pound signs in her eyes because at the same time her company gives her a huge raise and is now willing to put millions of dollars into manufacturing this product because it could be the next biggest toy on the market there's a there's a reasonable amount of setup in the film as well it's not just straight down to action there's enough time for you to get to learn who Katie is who Alison is and understand their motivations when things take a turn The kind of the crux of it is that, uh, obviously, as a a machine, Megan needs a series of inputs to know what to do. And so the input that Gemma gives her is about protecting Katie from harm, uh, emotional and physical. And that's where that's where it is. It's in that terminology of not just emotional, but also physical harm. That is what causes the program to escalate to the point where she becomes homicidal. And it's just such a simple thing but it works so well in the sense of the story it's very organic and it, it in no way stands out there's no it's it's not a film that feels forced in any way it's all very natural in its absurdity which is one of the reasons why I love it so much and then from there you get all of the key moments on the trailer such as where she is in the woods and she's kind of running but it's almost like Uh, It's almost dog-like in terms of um, the way she is bounding along, chasing this poor boy who you can see she's injured. Uh, And that leads to one of the moments in the film, which is where I think it's clear that there is a more gory film hiding underneath, and they have suggested that there could be an unrated cut coming. Uh, And obviously it leads to the dance sequence, which is just now this absolute viral sensation, Um, is equally as fun to watch on the big screen. I was very pleased that uh, if you've watched any of the marketing for it, you'll know that they've been using... uh, Actors dressed as Megan to just turn up in random places and kind of dance or do creepy things in the Megan style. And we did have a group of Megan dancers at our screening, which was very, very exciting. And you can see the video over on our Twitter. Actually, I posted a little behind the scenes of what James and I got up to the night we went to see the film. Uh, but if there was anything that I had to say was a downside, I think it was just that I would have liked a little bit more in terms of the the gore and the the threat from Megan. A lot of what is in the film is is psychological, and it is very creepy. But it doesn't kind of follow through to. I mean, it's not that I want to go around absolutely bludgeoning everyone in sight. But when when she does uh, when she does kill, so for instance, there are a couple the dance sequence. You see her pick up a guillotine that's near the the photocopier, and she does use that to kill a couple of people. And it's it's very tame in comparison to some films even to something else that's a big studio film like maybe a scream it doesn't even go quite that far because it is pushing itself towards that slightly younger audience and while it's awesome because it's going to be a kind of gateway drug for a lot of people who are younger to get into horror it would be nice to see a little bit more which is why i would welcome an unrated cut or a sequel which does push the boundaries just a little bit more other than that i think it's an incredibly entertaining film with a really great cast it is pretty you know it's well written it's it's well executed when there are visual effects, they are very well done. The uh, makeup effects, the mask that is used on the actress that's playing Megan, is very effective and she is genuinely very creepy and that the movements are amazing. There is there is no doubt that she is... There is a future as a potentially trained dancer in there because the, the control and the body movements in terms of that acting is, is absolutely outstanding. You would believe that she was a robot if you didn't know. Uh, I think I gave this film four stars on my review on Letterboxd, James reviewed it on the website, you can read his review now over there at www.getyourcomicon.co.uk, you can see the little cribbed version on our Instagram and on our Twitter as well, but if you have not seen it, please do go out and catch Megan in cinemas now. So the other film that I want to talk about is uh, Damien Chazelle's Babylon, which comes to UK cinemas at the end of this week, it's releasing on the 20th from Paramount Pictures. It's been in US cinemas for a little while now. This one, uh, so Damien Chazelle writes and directs. It's an all-star cast, so hold on to your seats for a second. In this film are Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, Jean Smart, Olivia Wilde, Diego Calver, Phoebe Tonkin, Troy Metcalf, Joven Adepo, Hansford Prince. I'm trying to go through this in the order that's on IMDb while skipping the random extras because it seems like it's in alphabetical order. Uh, Telvin Griffin, Cutty Cuthbert, Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Albert Hammond Jr. You've also got uh, Lucas Haas, Lin Jun Lee, Kaya Gerber, Patrick Fugit, Eric Roberts. Then there's a few more. Bear with me. Bob Clendidon. You've also got Johnny Hoops. Max Minghella, Samara Weaven, Jeff Garland, I think we've got them, Catherine Waterstone, that has got to be it for the main, I think that's it for the main cast, Uh, it's a huge ensemble, and it is an absolutely huge movie, which is undeniably a beast of cinema, what chazelle is doing is telling the kind of story of cinema and putting his relationship with cinema into a film itself it's very hedonistic the the best way for me to describe it and i've said this to a few people who found it an intriguing way of saying it but i've also kind of agreed for those who have seen it before um it's kind of like if moulin rouge and requiem for a dream had a baby it starts out with this huge party sequence which is what you uh, see in the trailer and in a lot of the posters there's a very famous shot of Margot Robbie being held up by the crowd that is in the first part of the film it actually runs for 32 minutes before you even see the opening title card and it's it's I mean it's so in your face and it's got this these really funny moments none of which I'm going to spoil for you uh, and is is so kind of like Chazelle on speed, if you I mean if you know him from a film like La La Land, it's it's a similar sort of aesthetic, but really really, really dialed up and hyper-realistic. But then after those credits, it becomes even more weird, but with a a level of context and depth which you wouldn't kind of expect it to have from its opening scene. It really dives deep into the lives of Diego Calva, Margot Robbie and Brad Pitt's characters. They're almost the three... Leads, as it were. Uh, although, you know, someone like Gene Smart's character is also incredibly important to the story. It's and it's so, it's the story of how these three characters' lives are affected by their relationship with Hollywood. Uh, Brad Pitt plays uh, a character who is very much a classic Hollywood uh, heartthrob. So, uh, the film is it begins in the 20s before the invention of sound in film and it tracks over a kind of 10 year period as sound becomes a major player in Hollywood as well as colour. Uh, so he plays Jack Conrad, who is this classic Hollywood, uh, Hollywood hearts as I said, who is a hero of the black and white film era and the silent film era. He has a slightly more erratic home life than he does kind of a screen life. But through and throughout the film, you meet different wives and girlfriends that he has. But on screen, he is this stalwart of Hollywood. He's one of the highest-paid actors. He, you know, he can demand whatever fee he wants for his films. He is a studio darling. And then sound is invented, and it has this huge impact on his career because what people then hear isn't necessarily what corresponds to what they had seen in the in the sort of silent film era. And so. His career trajectory is the exact opposite of what happens with Margot Robbie's character. So she plays Nellie Leroy, who is this uh, kind of Midwest kid who has come to Hollywood because she is desperate. I think she's from Jersey, actually, Um, who comes to Hollywood because she's desperate to make it. She wants to prove to her family and the people back home that she has what it takes to be the next big thing in Hollywood. And she does that by breaking into this party, which is how we're introduced to her at the beginning. And from there... Through some events, which I am definitely not going to explain on this podcast, Uh, she does land her first role. And it turns out that she has this absolutely incredible ability to emote again in silent film. And her career goes on this meteoric upward trajectory and again is impacted by the change in how films were produced when sound comes in. There is a wonderful scene, one of the best scenes in the film, which is somewhere around the middle. I mean, it clocks in at three hours and nine minutes, I should say. Uh, It's this extended scene in the middle where she's shooting her first ever scene with dialogue. And you really get down to the nitty gritty of how uh, having to go from just learning direction or taking direction to learning lines impacted on stars at that time but you also get to see (laughs) from a comedy perspective see I'm laughing talking about it from a comedy perspective you get to see some of a kind of hyper-realist version of what it must have been like on sets when they were first trying to work with sound I mean we take it for granted we might watch a silent film now and watch for a few seconds and think gosh that's so twee and antiquated flip the channels and watch you know the latest Transformers movie and see nothing but CGI huge score huge sound effects big booming channel filling audio and never I mean personally even you know I studied film I never gave a thought to what it must have been like for people who were working during this transitional period. So it's funny to watch Chazelle's version of what that's like, and again, so Nelly is impacted, and it brings her to a place where, at the end of the film, both you know Jack and Nelly's characters are in a position which is nowhere near where they are at the beginning, and in many ways, is quite actually it's quite a poignant and depressing ending. It really leaves you walking out of the cinema thinking about what an industry that is so lauded and that we all love and is the reason why i'm making this podcast why you're listening to this podcast you know we're all here because we love film and actually there is a negative side to that the other lead is diego calva um who plays manny he's a love interest for nelly but also someone who wants to break into the film industry he's working as kind of a butler almost as it were at the house where the party takes place at the beginning also finds himself in Hollywood he's behind the camera ends up a prolific producer and, and executive in a studio is in love with Nelly but the, the two kind of circle each other in different in different ways throughout the film and then come back together at the end his journey again it's and this is why I draw the comparison to Requiem for a dream because it's these uh, kind of trio of leads who all have a kind of singular, aspect of their lives, which in Requiem for a Dream is the drugs, here it's it's Hollywood, and go on this huge trajectory, huge arc throughout the, the course of the film that takes them to some really high highs and some incredibly low lows. And uh, Manny is another excellent character who has some really defining moments, you know, having to speak to a black musician to explain to him that he, under a spotlight, is not does not look as black as the other black people in in the group scene that he's in and having to force him to wear makeup is, I mean that's a moment where people in the cinema you, know, you could hear a pin drop because it was so tense on the flip side Nellie has huge ridiculous moments along with her father who's played by Eric Roberts there's a scene of fighting a snake that is utterly preposterous, completely ridiculous but hilarious so I've kind of mentioned Gene Smart's character who's sort of Um, I'm going to call her a recurring theme. She is a Hollywood journalist who kind of dips in and out of scenes but is a constant presence throughout the film. Has a very interesting... So she's called Eleanor St. John and she has this very interesting relationship with Nellie and also with Jack. Less so with uh, with Manny. But a scene which you glimpse in the trailers between uh, Jack and Eleanor is... I mean, it, it brought people to tears in the cinema because it was so emotional. And it just wonderfully typifies... The Hollywood movie industry it comes at a point where Jack is questioning his future and questioning his relevance and coming to the realization that he is not as relevant as he was during the silent era and she gives him this amazing speech uh, which again I don't want to spoil much of but I do need to touch on just because it's so so well written she you know even taking her own self-importance out of the scene just talks to him about how Hollywood will exist long after the two of them are dead so not even you know you were you had 15 minutes of fame you might still be here but you're meaningless now you know she is sitting here and saying to him there are audiences in 50 100 years time who are going to watch one of your movies or you know watch all of your movies and be a huge fan of you and feel like they know you inside out from all of your performances and those people may not even have taken their first breath before you have taken your last. And it's this wonderful example of explaining how um, the Hollywood industry is timeless despite everyone in it having their time. It, and again, Jeans Smart deserves all of the award nominations and awards that she will hopefully get for it as is Brad Pitt, who his performance is incredibly surprising. I mean, he's a great actor, but he is amazing in this. And the two of them together in that scene are absolute dynamite. Likewise, Margot Robbie blew me away. She was outstanding. I will not hear a bad word said about her in this film. She cries on cue. She laughs on cue. She dances on cue. She's everything that you need her to be. It's unbelievable how she performs the hell out of everything that Chazelle gives her in this film. Honestly, she is outstanding. Uh, I don't know that I can say. Mu- oh, uh, there's me saying I don't know that I can say much more. We need to touch on the score. It just won the Golden Globe. It's by Justin Hurwitz, who normally works with Chazelle, worked on La La Land, etc. Uh, oh my God, the music is perfect. It's absolutely sublime. Uh, I, I mean, I, I danced out of the cinema because the end credits were just so much fun. It's I mean it's set in the twenties and the thirties, so that tells you what type of music is going to be involved. There are some newer influences in it as well. There are some brilliant recurrent themes in there. It's I've been listening to it on loop ever since I saw the film last week. It's just it's outstanding. I gave this film four stars in my review on Letterboxd. Ren reviewed this one for us on the website, gave it a full five out of five, and even had a quote license, so hopefully he'll be turning up in a trailer. But the reviews have been a mixed bag overall it's not going to be a film which is for everyone firstly because of that incredibly bloated runtime three hours and nine minutes is a long time to sit in a cinema but also just because its messages are so specific that it really speaks to people with a love of film I don't know how it will speak to a wider audience per se even towards the end uh, there are some scenes uh, once you meet Toby Maguire uh, he wasn't on the cast list. Once you meet Toby Maguire, it's not a surprise that he's in it. There are stills out there. Um, the film does go in a very strange trajectory with Manny for a few moments, which I found a little bit disturbing. But also, I just wasn't sure whether it was necessary. And then, once you really reach the actual proper end of the film, it... Uh, it brings in a montage of cinema and does some very strange visual tricks which are all about kind of hammering home the director's love of cinema and the development of cinema over the decades which I think is going to be a little difficult to land with some people I did have to kind of walk out of the cinema and sort of say I'm not sure what that was and talk to a few people about it for it to sort of make sense to me and I'm still not sure that it does and for that reason I think there will be those who will sit down and watch the whole film who will feel that the ending maybe doesn't quite give them the same sort of sense of accomplishment in the film that the that that huge opening sequence does. So it's definitely not for everyone, but it's still a brilliant film and I'm going to end it there before I've said too much or confused myself. So Babylon uh, from Paramount Pictures is going to be in UK cinemas from the 20th of January, so that's the end of this week you'll be able to catch that in UK cinemas. Do go and listen to the soundtrack though because it is honestly outstanding. Justin Hurwitz is a genius. Now, before we wrap up this episode, I do want to give you a couple of recommendations. There is a brand new Paramount Plus show called The Chemistry of Death, which starts this week. It stars Harry Treadaway, who uh, played the Romulan. I'm going to call him Narek. I'm sure it was Narek in the first season of Star Trek Picard. He is our lead. He plays David Hunter, who is a former forensic anthropologist, who is now a uh, GP in a quaint little country town who gets uh, pulled into a murder mystery. It uh, I don't want to say too much more because if you've read the books or if I start talking about who's in it, you'll sort of it'll signpost too much. And I don't want to spoil it. So uh, David Hunter is uh, the lead in a series of books written by Simon Beckett, of which chemistry of death is the first one. David is. So, as I said, he's a former uh, forensic anthropologist. There is a kind of incident from his past which caused him to step away. And he has now just been working as a doctor in the years since. But when he's been working for a few years in this uh, kind of quaint English countryside town, he gets uh, drawn into a murder investigation after a body is found. Now, it's a six episode series, which is uh, premiering on Paramount Plus on the 19th of January. I've seen the first three episodes and I can confirm that this first season is actually going to cover both the first and second of Beckett's books. So I'm currently reading The Chemistry of Death now. I've not read his books before. So there there are kind of two mysteries to this. So I don't want to start talking through actors because you'll find there are some that are not in the first couple of episodes that come into it towards the end of episode three and we will be in the back half of the season as you get into the second mystery. But what you've got is Treadaway as this really amiable forensic anthropologist character in a kind of silent witness way. Uh, You know, there are we're we're stumbling across crimes uh it's you know it very much has those procedural elements but it's it's not a case of the weak scenario like something like say bones which is obviously more comedic at the same time this is a sort of longer arced limited series which is aiming to just give beckett's stories some breathing space and i realize i'm going to say too much considering i think it's still under embargo but having watched three episodes um well I had to binge those three episodes back to back I watched them all in one day I started watching it one Saturday morning to review it and I had to watch all three of them back to back it was that compelling uh Treadaway is a really great lead there's a great supporting cast some very recognizable faces it's very well written this isn't the kind of crime thriller that goes into so much detail that it will turn your stomach and it's not so light that it is uh kind of not enough for you to to find any meat on the bones it's the perfect kind of balance of character driven story and crime procedural so that one premieres on paramount plus on the uh, 19th of january and will run for, for i think it's premiering with two episodes and will then run uh through the rest of the six episode series i also want to recommend you a comic book that you have to go out and pick up this week releasing uh on the 17th is the 100th issue of Nightwing, which is from DC Comics. It's written by Tom Taylor. The main artwork is by Bruno Redondo. There are a ton, I'm going to say a shit ton, of guest artists and cover artists who are working on this book. I'm going to be giving it a five-star review, which you'll be able to see on the website. It's just a wonderful celebration of the past 100 issues of Nightwing, as well as a wonderful celebration of the character of Dick Grayson Nightwing altogether. There are some brilliant guest stars, there are some wonderfully emotional moments, and it ties up the arc that has been running through the last few months of the Nightwing book itself. It's just a wonderful celebration of a character who has become almost the the centre of the DC universe. He... Obviously started out as Robin, as we all know. If Boy Wonder was here, I don't think he's even read it yet, but if he was here, he'd be telling you how much he loves this character. But how this character has gone from being a sidekick to a former sidekick hero to the leader of the Titans and now someone who could lead the Justice League. It's a wonderful, wonderful story, which will really surprise you in how emotional it is. So please, if you only read one comic book this week, make it Nightwing 100 from DC Comics. I'm losing my voice. That's all I have to say for this episode. I will have, hopefully, some interviews from an animated film, which is coming out very soon, for you to listen to in the next episode. going to be recording those in the next few days. So until next time, stay safe, stay well, keep up to date with the latest news on our website, which is www.gateyourcomicon.co.uk, and I will speak to you very soon. Bye!